0: Thank you. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. I'll have our reading this morning from our teaching, and then we will dismiss the children. John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, number 4. Bible's in the back if you don't have one, but we're in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test them for himself. He knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each one of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted, verse 12. And they had eaten their fill, and he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from five barley loaves left by, the, by those had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Verse 15, the close. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. John 6 is where we are. Kids, you're dismissed. Children's Church. While the rest of us are in chapter 6, studying the same thing the gospel, centrality of Christ. And we'll see that so clearly here this morning in chapter 6. We are going to be, I'll tell you right now, we are going to be in chapter 6 for a little while. Uh, there's a lot here. Uh, as you know, we're going through the book verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And this, this chapter really is, is loaded with spiritual nourishment. Um, I, I want to take our time as we walk through this chapter, as we eat and drink and are satisfied in Christ. That's what this chapter is about. It's about Christ who alone can satisfy the heart, who alone is worthy of our worship. And this chapter, chapter 6, makes it crystal clear just who Jesus is, the invisible made visible. That's the title of our, of our, of our series in John chapter 4. The God of all crea- creation, the transcendent God who took on flesh and blood, creating bread from nothing, feeding thousands He's the all-satisfying Savior. That's where we're going. I'm going to give you it to you, to you right up front. Jesus is the all-satisfying Savior of the world, the true and greater Moses. Chapter 5, Jesus healed a man, if you remember, who was an invalid on the Sabbath, breaking their man-made laws, and it angered the highly religious people. Legalists love to get angry when God's grace shows up in a way that's not kosher for them. Then in the context of this Sabbath breaking, which Jesus never really broke the Sabbath, it's just the laws, Jesus goes on this teaching about the coextensive um, the coextensive activity and authority in which he has, as the as the the, the Son of God, the, the union and, and the oneness, equality with God. Last week we went into the courtroom, They're like basically saying, You're saying all these things about yourself being the son of God, coequal, union, activity, authority. Where's the witness for this? And Jesus calls upon many witnesses. We saw that last week. And then in verse 37, the tables are turned. Jesus goes on the offensive and turns the table around and basically tells the religious leaders what the deal is about him being the eternal son of God. So as we move into chapter 6, we see this very reoccurring theme going on. I've been walking with us. It's a very theological theme. We're hard-headed. You're welcome. Oh, not me. Yeah? Ask the person you came with, okay? Not right now. Tell them to be honest with you. We just don't get it. We just don't get it. And the good news is God wants us to know. That's why he gave us his word. That's why he will give us his spirit. To reveal truth, to illuminate our hearts. In chapter 2, Jesus tells the religious leaders, destroy this temple and it will be raised up. They're saying it took 40-something years he was talking about his body. Chapter 3, you must be born again, Nicodemus. You want to see her enter the kingdom. He's like, really? How am I going to go inside my mother's womb again? Chapter 4, Jesus comes to the Samaritan woman and says, give me a drink. She's like, you've got nothing to drink from. He said, if you knew, the water of what I'll give you will eternally satisfy you. She didn't get it. They come back with lunch, you remember? After they were in Samaritan town, they come back. And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him, of him who sent me. And they're like, did you eat something while we were gone? Right over their head. Chapter 5, an invalid gets healed. He thinks his greatest problem is walking. It's not. It was his sin. Jesus is going to feed somewhere between ten and 15,000 people with a boy's lunch. And they're so excited that they got this walking caterer with them on the hillside. And they cling to him and want to make him king for all the wrong reasons. Totally confused. The feeding of the 5,000 men is a miracle that points to a much greater reality. It has been such a joy to read this text, to study this text this week. Because what Jesus is going to do is feed... People, but it's going to be more than just feeding people. Rather than just giving them regular and physical bread, he wants to point to their spiritual condition and them to see who he really is. This is for sure this reoccurring thing over and over in the gospel according to John. Jesus does something, Jesus says something in the natural realm as a way to pointing to something much more important, to the spiritual reality, and people just don't get it been praying for us this week. Many of you will get it today. We won't walk away as some did at the end of the chapter. We'll get there in a few weeks. That we run and we cling to Christ. Today, our text in chapter 6, we're going to look under it. We're going to look at the text under four headings. For those of you who think that every sermon should be a three-point text, okay? There's four today. I did it on purpose. The condition of the crowd, the concerned disciples, the calculated feeding, and finally we'll end on the contrived coronation. Okay? So that's where we're going. Verse 1. Condition of the crowd. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Okay? Now, the term after this is a very vague term in the Greek, on purpose. John is less interested, if you read his gospel account, he's less interested in the chronological narrative and more interested in the sequences, events, as he ties them together to show us what his purpose is in writing the book. What is that, church? Where do we find that? Somebody. Chapter 20, right? Purpose of the book. We don't have to, he tells us. We don't have to look for it. Jesus did many of these signs in the presence of his disciples, but these were written, this specifical events were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Believing on him, you'll have life in his name. That's what everything's about. And here we see Jesus probably months later, maybe six to eight months, commentators are, differ on that. Having left Jerusalem, where we were in uh, chapter 5, went north to Galilee. And it says that he went to the other side of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. I have a map for you today. Just so we know where we're all at, okay? So, north from Jerusalem is Galilee. There's Cana, Nazareth, Tiberias, which we'll learn for a second, Capernaum, okay, Gennesaret, Bethsaida, okay? So, Jesus is here and then goes to the other side, okay? So, that, that's, that's kind of the text where we're going. So, he goes to the other side of Galilee, now, some people, like Luke, calls it Gennesaret, which is uh, a Hebrew word that means lyre or, or harp because of the shape of the Sea of Galilee. Locally, people called it the Sea of Galilee at the time of Jesus, 30, 33 AD. But, but when John wrote this, some years later, maybe 20 years later, it was commonly known as the Sea of Tiberias. You see that because in AD 22, uh, Herod Antipas founded Tiberius and named it after the emperor. So as years went on, as John you know, wrote this gospel account years later, the name of the lake took, excuse me, the name of the town took on the name of the lake. So we call it the Sea of Galilee. Some people call it the Sea of, of Tiberias. That's why it says that in our text. John's letting you know, for those that, who, who've used that name, it's the same place. Jesus is on the other side of the lake, east of the lake, which is more remote and populous. So Jesus, in our text, goes from the west side of the lake To the east side of the lake. I think it's about nine miles I think I read this week. Now what's really cool about this. And I'm going to put this in a little more of a historical setting. And I'm going to spend a lot of time on a historical setting. This miracle sets the stage for the whole rest of the chapter. You get this wrong. You misunderstand the setting. Contextual historical setting. You miss everything. So that's what we're going to do today. That's all we're going to do. And then we'll get into the main teaching next week. We'll start next week. But. Really cool in this narrative is this miracle, this feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle other than the resurrection that is written in all four gospel accounts. This miracle, the resurrection from the dead. So it's in what they call the synoptic gospels as well. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic meaning similar. Okay? And what we do, what, what I've done is, if you read the other synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll find out a couple of really cool things going on. Kind of set the stage for you. Okay? In Luke 1... Chapter 9, right before this incident where Jesus goes from the west side to the east side, Jesus had sent the 12 out, his 12 disciples, into the towns, into, into Galilee, into that region, and gave them authority over demons to preach the gospel, and they were just on ministry. And he sends them out into the towns. They had authority, it had cured diseases, they're in full ministry. Right before this narrative, they also had come back. So Jesus sends them out. They also come back and they're exhausted. It's been a busy time of ministry. So right before this text, Mark 6 says the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, wow, I could only imagine what he, you know, a lot of ministry. He says, listen, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. The west side was a busy place. The east side was a little more remote and where the mountains were. It was a little more quiet. So Jesus says, you've done lots of ministry. Let's go and let's rest. And they head eastward, it says, to Bethsaida, the other side of the lake. That's in Mark. Matthew tells us that Jesus went to the other side because he had heard that his relative, possible cousin, John the Baptist, got whacked by Herod. He got his head cut off. So that's, that's the little instant that Matthew tells us. Matthew 14, after Jesus learned about his, this, this killing of, his, of uh, John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Luke tells us that there was many crowds coming, following him, and Jesus was speaking of the kingdom and curing diseases. Matthew and Mark tell us that he went, saw a large crowd, had compassion on them, healing their sick and teaching them many things going on. Many things, teaching them all kinds of things. There's a lot going on. I want you to see that. The disciples are reporting. Giant crowds are following them. They're going from town to town. People are coming. Jesus is on his way from the west side to the east side. He's teaching. He's healing people. He learns about John the Baptist getting killed and his head cut off, and he's trying to get away to get some rest. For himself, when you hear bad news, you just want to get away and reflect. For his disciples who are out ministering, Let's just stop for a minute and say, if the Son of God needs rest, so do we. There's a lot going on. Are are you a busy person? As I told you before, I like to keep notes. I like to write downs. I like to check things off. Sometimes, if we don't take the proper rest, if we don't take the proper time, if we don't learn to rest, we'll become not more productive, but less. Burning out is never good, productive. And it's certainly not give us the strength we need for things that really matter. Need rest. Verse two, a large crowd was following him because they saw the sign he was doing and Jesus went up to the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. I'm like, I'm reading that. I'm like, you think? Dang it, I would need a rest. I'm tired just telling you what was going on. But... <laughs> And there, Jesus finally gets on the mountain, and he's with his disciples. The crowd's there, but it seems like there's a little time of seclusion, a time of rest. I mean, you could just, just imagine it for a moment. He's up on this mountain, his disciples are with him, they're sitting down, not in pews or in chairs, they're resting on the side of the mountain, green grass, overlooking this beautiful sea, just waiting to hear what Jesus is going to say next. And they're just waiting and resting. Can you imagine the scene? How lovely it must have been to have this intimate, quiet time with Jesus. Well, you and I may not be able to sit physically, quietly on a mountainside, resting on one arm maybe, with Jesus. But family, we have His Word, we have times of prayer. Where we talk to him, he talks to us in his word. And, and I'm saying this, to, if I, had, I wish I had a mirror right here. Lou, take time, intimate time with Jesus. Read his word for your soul. Talk to him often for the power you need to carry on. That's what it says to me. I hope that speaks to you as well. Because in order to be productive and live on mission, declaring and demonstrating the gospel, we need time to refresh our bodies, refresh our souls. And that can only happen as we sit and listen, read, pray, and spend intimate time with Jesus. A life lived in the presence of Jesus will be a life that is effective for the kingdom of God. Now, if you have your Bibles open, look at verse 2 for a minute. There's a clue there. And hopefully some of you picked up that clue. If not, that's okay. I'm going to tell you. There's a contextual clue that's very important in this text. The crowd was growing. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. There are verbs in that text all over the place. What he's saying is the people kept on following Jesus, and continually watching and seeing and observing the signs that he was continually doing. That's a colossal marker for you. Mark that in your Bibles. It, it, it should, if you've been studying with us, you should say, yeah, we've heard that before. Right? Very important. Chapter 2. Jesus performs his miracle in Cana, turning water into wine. It says he went down to Jerusalem, and there was many signs that he was doing. And then John plops in, chapter 2, verse 24. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Does that sound familiar? We talked about this. The point was, he did not believe they're believing. They were following him. They were watching him. They are believing in his miracles. He did not trust himself to these spurious converts because he knew exercising faith simply in a miracle. Simply on the grounds of a miracle. is dangerous to say the least. Even Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Why? We saw the miracles you were doing. Chapter 4, do you remember? Jesus on his way back to Galilee. It says that he said there is no honor for a prophet in his hometown, and they welcomed him. What was that welcome? We talked about that. This welcome was not a welcome of faith in who Jesus is. It was a homeboy welcome. This is the guy that does the miracles, not the Messiah and their reception in Cana in chapter 4, and this reception of this crowd that is gathering is simply the same thing, a shallow, inquisitive, excuse me, a shallow, thrill-seeking, sign-based curiosity. Family, they're coming to Jesus because he's useful. Missing the person while being enamored with the glamour, with the highlights, with 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 the experiential things that Jesus was doing. That's the context here, you need to see that. The people will witness a miracle shortly but they still don't get it. They're seeking Jesus to get stuff. They're seeking to be satisfied in the natural in the works and the wonders of Jesus and the miracles, but they miss the most important thing and that's the miracle worker himself. The true significance of Jesus miracle and his the miracle signs points to something much greater. Much greater. Its significance has to do with him being the eternal son of God, the Messiah. But in the midst of this, we see it over and over. In the midst of this, God and his grace, his love, his mercy, even in your own life if you don't get it, is still pursuing you in love. He doesn't say, you know, I'm done. I'm, I, I, I keep teaching these people they still don't get it. To hell with you. You see, impatiently, loving, graciously pursuing and revealing himself as the ultimate bread from heaven. So in the midst of this, this condition, this, this heart condition of the crowd, Jesus is seeking and showing himself to be their satisfaction. How often, don't answer this question, think for yourself, how often, and this is so convicting for me, how often do, do we sense and know and drink and eat of the ultimate satisfaction that Christ has, is for us and all that He has done and all that He is, and then go and seek satisfaction in something else the very next day. Ah, it's convicting. Verse four. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Was at hand. Mark that in your Bibles. That's another clue. John just doesn't throw that in there for no for no reason. The feast of the tabernacle, excuse me, the feast of the Passover is at hand. Again, it's not so much chronological as it is theological. John says the feast of the Passover is at hand. Why? What is it about? God delivering His people. You remember from Egypt, in slavery in Egypt, He raised up Moses, recorded in Exodus. Moses went to Pharaoh, demanding, "Let my people go." so that they may worship the Lord. Pharaoh's like, you're not going. God's like, all right, sends the plagues. You know the story. The very last plague was sent. Uh, Moses, excuse me, comes into Pharaoh and says, let my people go. He doesn't want to hear it. And then God comes to Moses and says, listen, this is what I want you to do. Take a year old lamb without blemish, kill it at midnight. Take some of the blood, pour it on a doorpost, the lintel of the houses, the frames, and I will pass through the to Egypt tonight. I will strike the firstborn in the land, both man and beast and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. Judgment time. It's judgment time. Pharaoh gave you nine chances. I've been as gracious to you as I possibly can be. It's now, it's time to pay up. Every single plague was a plague of grace. Trying to get Pharaoh to wake up. What did they do that night? All the Israelites get together. They kill the lamb put the blood over and that angel of death passes over their house. That morning when everyone woke up, there was either a dead lamb or a dead boy. Because when justice comes down, it comes down on everybody. They took shelter under the lamb. You know what happens next? They leave in haste. Right? They leave in haste. They get to the Red Sea. Moses, through God's power, of course God does it, opens up the Red Sea and through the, through the sea they go. The sea closes and drowns. All of Pharaoh's army. Then 40 years later, they're wandering, right? And during that 40 years, God's providing for them. And what does he send from heaven? Manna. And feeds them and cares for them until they enter into, redeemed and liberated from slavery into Cana. And he says, every year I want you to do this memorial. Every year, this must take place in remembrance of what had happened and took place. John mentions three Passovers in his gospel account. First one, chapter two. And the context is Jesus being, I'm the true temple. I'm giving my life. Kill it, kill me, put me in the grave three days later. I'll rise from the dead. They didn't get it. The third time he mentions is in chapter 11. He's actually talking about his death. The second time is right here. Why? I'm not going to tell you right now. I can do that. Look at the concern. Verse six, excuse me, verse five B. Large crowds are coming. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? 5,000 men up to 15,000 considering women and children, 10, 15, we don't know exactly. He said to them to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, again, from the other synoptic Gospels, what we learn is that the disciples came to Jesus first before this incident that he talks to Philip. Mark chapter 6 says it was growing late. The disciples came to Jesus and said, man, this is a desolate place. No McDonald's. There's no, you know, uh, Jersey Joe subs, which I can't wait for that to open. There's no, what's the other place over there? There's, you know, w- Moe's, thanks, Moe's. You know, w- what are we going to do? The hour is late, Jesus. Send them away. Go ahead, Jesus. Send them away to the surrounding countryside and villages, and they can buy themselves something to eat. I think it was that point when they came with the concern to Jesus, Jesus turns to Philip, and he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread? I mean, Philip's from a nearby town. Everybody's like, well, why did he talk to Philip first? You know, was Philip like the, you know, the catering boss? Like, I don't know. But Philip's from Bethsaida. Well, maybe he's like, listen, you know the area. You feed him. You tell him where to go. John says it was a test. It was only a test. If it was an actual emergency, you would have been instructed where to tune in your air for news and official information. He was testing Philip. God is a testing God. You know that? James 1, count a joy, family, when trials of different kinds, pokalos is the Greek, it means of different intensities. For the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be complete lacking in nothing. Unfortunately, Philip, we love you, you failed. Look at verse 7. Philip said, 200 denarii worth of bread would not even be enough for each of them to get a little. Philip, rather than focus on Jesus, began to be the numbers cruncher, right? He's like, ah, oh. let's see. Pull out his pocket phone, his iPhone. Let's see, 5,000 men plus women and children, one denarii. Full day's wage was one denarii could feed one family, let's see, $15,000, 200, 200 denarii. yeah, worth of bread. Maybe it's like eight months wages. It's a large crowd. Maybe if they just get a little bit, then there was, of course, the problem. Where am I going to get $200 denarii from? You know, maybe we can hit the first national bank of Beseda, but I don't think Jesus is really going to do that. <laughs> so Philip does his calculations, buddy. He calculated without Christ. Now, as funny as that is, let's stop for a moment. Hardships, trials, family struggles, job struggles, something going on in school. First thing was like, how am I going to handle this? What, what am I going to do? I don't see any way around this. I don't see any way through this. I don't see anything that I'm going to do. If you notice the theme in all that is I. I just happens to be the middle letter in the word sin. Satan tempts us to fail. Satan tempts us to destroy. God tests us to build us up. Remember that, folks. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure. If it's a test from God, it is to show your faith to be genuine and real. He already knows. It's not for you, it's not for him. It's for your edification. The testing of God for God's people is for their strength, encouragement, growth in grace. Billy Graham said this, Remember, if our faith is weak, it may not be obvious when life is going smoothly and we aren't challenged in any way. Amen? All right. But when hard times come, a weak faith will be revealed for what it really is. Shallow and unable to help us through life's difficulties. It may be anything, an unexpected illness, a death of a loved one, the loss of a job, or even a friend who turns against us. But when hard times come and they happen, the true nature of our faith will be revealed." End quote. But let me let me let me say this too. God's children do not always come through with the first place ribbon. I did it. At least I don't. And sometimes we blow it. And sometimes God disciplines us in love. God is always good. God is always looking to encourage. God is always looking to build. Sometimes it's through Discipline, but he's always good. Philip blew it. Look at verse 8. One of the disciples had to come in, and Andrew, Simon's brother, said to him, You know, Lord, there, there's a boy here, It's like 12,000 people. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves. My right, Barley loaves was, is the poor man's bread back in that day, so it was poor. And two fish. But what are they are so many? I, I read stories like this, like how do you find a kid among this crowd with some food? I don't know. You know, it's like, has anybody got any food, little boy? You know, I don't know how it happens, but he knows that there's a boy. And one thing we know about Andrew from the scripture, we don't know a lot, but we know a little bit. He loves to bring people to Jesus, man. He just loves bringing people to Jesus. It reminds me of Bill Blake. Loves to bring people to Jesus. I've got to tell you about Jesus. He's at a friend's house uh, doing some work. And the neighbor, he's not even in the job. He's been talking to the neighbor about Jesus. I love to bring people to Jesus. Andrew, chapter 1, right, spends a day with Jesus. Next thing you know, he's looking for his brother, Simon Peter. Come. I think we found the Messiah. Come and meet Jesus. John chapter 11, the Jews and the Greeks want to meet Jesus. They bring him to Jesus. Here we see this boy who's, you know, his lad with a lunch. And, and Andrew's like, come here. I want you to meet somebody. Come and meet Jesus. This guy got some food. He's got some food. He's got a bag lunch. And he got some food. It's just awesome. What a lesson we learn. Ordinary people use in extraordinary ways. It was Edward Kimball. He's a Sunday school teacher, concerned about a young lad in his class. Determined to talk to this rather crude young man and went down to his shoe store, confronted him about with the gospel. He writes, he, he recalls the incident and he says, I could never remember what exactly I said. Something about Jesus, something about his love. That was it. And he made the appeal, and the guy gave his life to Christ, and that is D.L. Moody. He became a powerful evangelist. Now, one has to ask my, I, I ask myself these questions when I read these texts. Why Andrew would even mention the boy's lunch at all? Why don't he just say to the kid, listen, hide that food, man. There'll be a lot of hungry people around here. If they see you even eating that bread, you're done. It'll be a mob scene. Go hide, go find some place before you get killed. We have two fish and five loaves. It's like, it's sort of like you're in the middle of nowhere with your friend. Nowhere. And your car blows up on fire. And you turn to your friend, and you go, I have a car back home. You're Like, so what? <laughs> <laughs> I got a new car. It's parked in my driveway. Really? That's great. That does me no good whatsoever. Right now, we're in the middle of nowhere. We're walking for a hundred miles. Your car back home doesn't mean nothing to me. You know, we have two, we have five loaves and two fish. Now we like to think that he's like, Jesus, we, we just healed many people Casting out demons, doing all this ministry. We've seen you turn water into, we've seen all this. Listen, we have five loaves and two fish. Do what you gotta do, because I know you can multiply this. That's what we like to think. That's what we like to think you would do, right? Like, that's what I would do. I've I, I seen, I seen, I seen all the things he's done for two years. I mean, why don't you just bring him to Jesus and say, listen, do what you gotta do, miracle worker. Like, no, we're, we're concerned, like you're concerned, uh, but, they, but, but they don't get it. Not, they honestly, like, they're not getting it. There's, there's the disciples that just, like, we're trying to figure this stuff out, and then there's this boy who's like, you can have my lunch. Now, if you've been in Sunday school in any amount of time in your life, if you've been at 20, 30 years, there's been all kinds of stories that were told about this boy. He was a nice little boy. His mommy feed him. He's going, you know, like, none of that is true. It's not biblical. But James Montgomery Boyce does a really good job, I think, at just talking a little bit about this little lad, with his little lunch, that he's willing to offer it up to others. He says this. Here was a small boy, poor and, poor and insignificant, yet that boy did something that set him apart from all the other boys who may have been in the crowd that day. That boy gave his lunch, poor as it was to Jesus Christ. That lunch was insignificant as it could be. Little lunch. It was as insignificant as the boy was, but the point of the story is that the insignificant from the hands of this insignificant, no, the insufficient from the hands of the insignificant became sufficient. All right? The point of the story is that the insufficient from the hands of the insignificant became sufficient and significant when placed in the hands of Jesus. That's a beautiful ending to that story right there. Great, All right, So you have the confused crowd. You've got the concerned disciples, right? So they take this little boy to Jesus. And number three, look at the calculated feeding. Jesus said, verse 10, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down about 500, 5,000 in number, okay? Mark tells us that they sat in groups of hundreds and fifties. And, and what I... What I what I just want to point out to you here, I think is important, is although they didn't understand what was going on, they were like, all right, Jesus is going to do something, man. This is great. He's telling us to sit people down. Hey, somebody sit down, 550. We I mean, got All these groups, everybody, Jesus is going to feed everyone. I don't think that's what they were doing. But I will tell you this, they obeyed. I don't know what you're doing. I have no idea what's going on. I'm not really sure what tomorrow holds for me, Lord. I don't know about this job. I don't know about this family. I don't know about my guy. I don't know. But I'll do what you tell me to do. Isn't that a beautiful picture? They're like, all oh, right, Jesus said to go sit down. All right, everybody sit down. The Lord said, sit down. I really don't think they knew exactly what was going to happen at that moment, but they did obey. Verse 11 Jesus takes the loaves, he gives thanks, and then he distributes to those who were seated. Maybe those who standing didn't eat, I don't know. No, I'm kidding. But everyone sat down. So he took the fish as much as they wanted. Verse 12. And when they eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, and that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with pieces, with fragments, from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. I love, I love the way this eyewitness testimony is revealed to us. It's so calculated. Two fish, five loaves, sitting 50s and 100s, 5,000 men, everyone ate, and there was actually 12 baskets left over. Now, there's some who think, well, this, this, this can't be really a miracle. Come on, really? He took five loaves, two fish, and fed 10,000 people? Well, if you're tracking with us, he said in John 1, man, Jesus is the word, the eternal word, who created everything. It's right in the prologue. He takes gallons of water and goes, boom, and it's wine. Right? He speaks in chapter five of chapter four and says, your son is healed. He's miles away and his fever leaves him immediately. In chapter six, he says, I am working like my father is working. If you're tracking with us chapter one, two, three, four, and five, and six, and you get to this, no problem. No problem. You have to deny the rest of scripture, two small fish, five barley loaves, ex nihilo, which means from nothing, and produces enough food for 5,000 men. Colossians says that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, thrones and authority and rulers, all things are created by him and for him. No problem. No problem. But some people just can't see it. I was talking to somebody earlier today. William Barclay is a commentator. He's got some really good stuff in his his commentation, or whatever. You know what I'm talking about. He has, like, wonderful things to say about the culture of that day. He gets this so wrong. This is what he says. He says, we may never know exactly what happened up on that grassy field. Maybe this was simply a sacramental meal. It could be that at this meal, it was but a morsel. Bring a little piece. Like the sacrament that each person receives. And that's the thrill and wonder of the presence of Jesus and the reality of God. Turn the sacramental crumb into something which richly nourished their hearts and souls. End quote. <laughs> that's, a, that's even a better miracle, I think. Two small fish, everyone gets a bite? Five loaves and everyone gets a piece of wafer and there's 12 baskets left over. (laughs) He, He goes on to say, or the real miracle, not the feeding, the real miracle is that Jesus took the boys, the boy gave him his two fish, five loaves, and basically said to everybody, this boy is sharing. And then everyone under their cloak pulled out their food. They were hiding it. That's what it says in the commentary. And the real miracle is they became sharers of food. (laughs) Jesus took the bread, looked up to heaven in a form of Jewish thanksgiving with normal prayers of that day. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And then he distributed the bread with everyone who was seated and everyone, including the children, the women and the men, tummies were filled. Period. They were completely satisfied. Verse 12, food left over. He says, gather up the food. Okay? Dr. D.A. Carson does lectures on John. He's one of the most profound and and well-known New Testament scholars. He's awesome, D.A. Carson. He gives five questions, and I'm going to give this to you because this is really important. He gives us five questions so that you and I could jump into the context historically. So you and I could go to that mountaintop, that you and I can go to Palestine, to Galilee, and really understand what it means to give bread to people. Okay, following me? This is really important, and this text is going to be important for the rest of the chapter. Let me just give you five questions. When he gave them, and and I listened to them, I thought, this is something we need to understand. Okay? Contextually, historically, context, bread. Here's the five questions. Number one, if you ask a five-year-old, a three-year-old in Western America, in our revolutionized culture, and if you said to them, where does food come from, they would say, "Shot right. Price chopper. Hannaford comes in plastic and boxes. That's where food comes from. Most people would say that. Maybe there's some farming country, they would say they would understand animals and plants. But by and large, Little children think we go to the store and we buy food. Number two, what's the staple food of cultures? In America, there's a multicultural thing going on. I don't know if we could say what, but if you're in Italy, you're going to Ireland, there's some cultures today, and especially back then, it was beef and potatoes. It was pasta and red sauce. You know, there's a staple food that we don't understand. Number three, what happens to the food, bread, food in our here in America if there's a catastrophic event somewhere? The prices go up. You're like, wow, oranges, wow, they tripled in price. Yeah, they flew them in, not from Florida, they got them from Spain or somewhere else. Prices go up. There's been a major flood, a major catastrophe. You know, whatever it is, that's what happens when we run out of stuff. Number four, why do we work? Most people say, well, I got a car, I got a home. Not many of us will say, I work, because if I don't work, I won't eat. But in that day, 80% of your wages, a day's wages, 80% of that day's wages went to food. You don't work, you don't eat, you die. In fact, if you missed a week, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. And lastly, last question to get this idea about what food was and bread, particularly back then... What's your favorite snack food? Popcorn. Now you know something about me. For millions and billions of people throughout history, no such thing. No such thing. Incoherent to them. They don't have it like that. They're they're concerned about getting through the day with what they need to raise their family for the day. They're working to feed them for the day. That's why they work. Now I'm not trying to say we can't have snack food. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to have my popcorn tonight. But for them, the question is, you know, for us, we need to understand that this, this idea of food, where people were poor, where their staple diet was fish and bread, that if they did not eat, excuse me, they did not work or they did not have bread, they would die. You think of bread, you think of Wonder Bread. I do. Maybe when you're a kid. You had baloney sandwiches. You know whatever. When you were a kid, you had the Wonder Bread with the different colors on it. Sometimes when I think of bread, I think of New York City because there's no bread like it in the entire universe. You go to bread like nine grain, twelve grain, eight grain. You go to Subway. You're like all right, you got all these breads. It wasn't that way in the first century. Fish and bread. That's it. That's it. You don't eat. Excuse me. You don't have bread. You die. The word bread, then, I want you to understand this. When you see bread, think of life. Think of, if I don't have it, I can't feed my family. It's the staple. It's what they ate. And without it, we think sandwich, they think life and death. That will change us, the way we see this miracle. Okay? And the whole chapter. But for now, Jesus fills and satisfies their physical hunger. The very thing they need to sustain life was given them to them freely. 80% of their day's wages was given to them without lifting a finger. So much so that 12 baskets left over. What was started, what had started in the beginning of this miracle, there was more left at the very end. Now a lot of people make a big thing about being 12 baskets. 12 is a sign of Israel, the 12 tribe, 12, I don't know. I, I'm very careful with using numbers like that. Could be like one basket for each disciple for tomorrow, I don't know. But one thing I know, James Taylor said this, James Hudson Taylor said this, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. God's work in God's way will never lack God's supply. There is enough for the purposes of the gospel. There is enough for us to live on mission, to demonstrate and declare the gospel. There is enough. Okay, so let's go to our last point. Verse 14, we'll close. When the people saw the sign, wow, look at this caterer. Gave us what we need to live. Man, they said, this is the prophet. This has got to be that prophet who has come into the world. The sign was enough for them to say, we're waiting on this prophet. He's from Deuteronomy 18. Moses prophesies and says, the Lord your God will give you, will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, among you from your brothers. Listen to him. We've got the prophet, the very prophet. And Jesus is like, like, uh, yeah, I'm that prophet, but not what you think I am. I know you see the miraculous provision of food and I know it reminds you of Moses and manna. This giant, beautiful, creative, out of nothing food. I know you're waiting for this prophet, but for you it's just still about feeding your bellies. Look at verse 15. Perceiving then that we were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain. Jesus is a king, and Jesus will come in his kingdom. But it's not the king they wanted, the one who would feed them now naturally, the one that would take care of them now, the one that would break the oppression of Rome now. There's a lot of people at Passover. Great time to drag him and make him king. There was this nationalistic zeal to make him king. He would say, I will rush. I will bring in my kingdom, but my kingdom is not of this world, he tells Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. And making him king is where we started from the beginning. Lord, you're the prophet, you're the king. Come to your throne, earthly throne. You are very useful to us. We can use you. We can use you to overthrow. We can use you. We want you to be a king now. That's, that is what the prosperity gospel is. I take my appetites, I take my desires, and then I add Jesus to it. And it gives me everything I want. That's not the gospel. The crowd thought and declara- declared, you're the king. Jesus, you healed the sick, you filled out tummy, you must be the Messiah, come and take us as your king. Using him for what he can give you, not seeing him for how beautiful he is. We take him and we say, make my family better, make my job better, make my stress better, make my situations better. Change the circumstance. What Jesus wants to do this morning as we close is to change your appetite. You hear that? To change your appetite. Seeking first and foremost his beauty, his glory, his calculable worth and value in himself. So why are the Passover mentioned? We started that too. See the miracle feeding of the 5,000 triggers the discourse, the the talking, the teaching concerning the bread of life. It, It was the Passover, the escape from slavery that Moses gave them bread. The giving of manna. Jesus the true and better Moses. He is the true and better sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the true and better deliverer and redeemer who delivers us from sin, death, and hell and offers us satisfying bread, eternally satisfying bread. Not from starvation of empty bellies, but from eternal destruction. And he offers us eternal life. See, Jesus did not come into the world simply to make bread, but to be the all-satisfying bread for us. For our souls. He is the Lamb that was slain. He cares about us physically. He cares about our needs, but infinitely more about our desolate souls. And although we are dead in our sins, we are unable to come to the banquet feast. He gives us anyway what we need. Drop down to verse 51 and we shall close right now. The bread that I give you for the life of the world is my flesh. When he gives us his flesh on the cross, he becomes bread, all nourishing, all satisfying life for the believers. Do you come to Jesus because he's useful or are you coming to Jesus because he's beautiful? Are you coming to Jesus to change your circumstances or are you coming to Jesus to change your heart? Are you more concerned about your appetites and getting your things done? Are you coming to Jesus and saying, you're the King of kings, Lord of lords. You are enough. That's what this text is saying. Father, I, I think that I can say honestly that that's our heart's desire, but it's not always a reality. We confess that. We repent of that. We'll always confess and repent that truth. But Father, we pray that as we eat of the bread, the all-satisfying reality of who Jesus is and all that he has accomplished on the cross, Father, we pray that the earthly desires, the earthly, we just sang it a moment ago, our earthly things will just fade away and will cling to you. Father, grant us forgiveness when we have sinned. Grant us, Lord, we pray, that we may eat of you and know you intimately, and you'll be enough for us. Your grace is sufficient for us, we pray. Help us as we sing now to you to respond in a way that brings you most glory. You're our all-satisfying, all-nourishing God. You are enough.